0: We are joined this morning by missionaries our congregation has sponsored for a long time Steve and Cinda Gorman are here they've been missionaries in Egypt have many relationships in this presbytery and in this church and we have been blessed to be their sponsors for a long period of time I wanted to make sure to call attention to their presence and give us all a, an opportunity to welcome them back to Knox and thank them for their service Steve and Cinda would you please stand for a moment so everyone can see who you are Without a doubt, it is uh, a week in which we are keenly aware of the importance of religious tolerance and understanding and uh, faithful expressions of of faith in the land of Egypt. We thank you for your work. Um, Like most religions, Christians recognize special days that come up each year. Christmas and Easter are obvious ones for many of us. There are a number of lesser-known Christian holidays that come up each year and they have names like Trinity Sunday and Transfiguration Sunday and Pentecost. And on these days... Preachers like me are keenly aware that there is a real disconnect between what is going on in the church calendar and what's going on in most of your lives. My suspicion is that before Tina mentioned it to our children, almost none of you woke up this morning aware that it is Christ the King Sunday. But rather than abandoning these days as irrelevant as some churches and pastors may choose to do, I take these days as an opportunity for us to remember that we are part of a tradition that is much older and richer than we are by ourselves, and that in that tradition there is wisdom to be found if we choose to look for it. Beyond remembering these days for the sake of religion, there is meaning to be found in why these ancient celebrations take place. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent when we begin looking forward to the birth of Christ. It's the beginning of the new year in the church. And before we get there, today is the last Sunday of the church year. This is called Christ the King, or Reign of Christ Sunday. And today we celebrate Christ's eternal rule over all of the world. And the first problem with that celebration, it seems to me, is that when you look around the world at all of the things that are going very wrong, it seems clear that Jesus is not ruling. And so on this day, that is precisely the point. We come to church week after week and we say lots of words and we sing lots of songs about Christ being king, but for the most part, we humans live as if Christ is not our king. For most of us, all kinds of other things have the real power and authority in our lives. And yet many of our worship songs talk about the reign of God and Christ as King. And so it seems worthwhile to spend some time today asking what we mean when we say those prayers and sing those songs. And to realize that Christ the King Sunday is really a valuable reminder about something that is deeply practical. Today we consider where authority really resides in our lives. Where do you place your deepest trust? And from whence do you derive your sense of security? Let us pray. O God, as we consider the meaning of this day and of every day that you give us, Open our minds to your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh, oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A minister and author named Tim Keller tells this story about his own life. Like many younger ministers, I worked far too many hours, never saying no to anyone's request for my pastoral services. I was quite proud of being the kind of person who worked very hard, never complained, never asked for any help. This regularly brought me into conflict with my wife, who rightly contended that I was neglecting my relationships to her and to my young sons. It also led to health problems, although I was only in my early 30s. Nevertheless, he continues, I continued to feel that the way I was living was noble and good. I believed I was sacrificially committed to the ministry of the Word. I was especially delighted to make sacrifices that nobody saw, not my people in my congregation or even my family. And that made me feel most noble of all. If all of this created some problems for me personally, wasn't that just evidence of how truly devoted I was? It was a very dangerous situation. My future was bleak, though I did not know it. And I did not know it, for in the short run, this kind of workaholism is often rewarded. I'm sure many of you could tell a similar story about yourself or someone you know. Many of us have been dedicated to something we think is very good, only to discover that it is impacting us in some kind of negative way we never could have imagined. In his book called Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller goes on to explain that there is a word for this kind of thinking, and the word is... Idolatry. Idolatry. In church, idolatry is often spoken of in reference to old stories about ancient gods carved out of gold or stone. But back then, just like now, idolatry exists in lots of other st- uh, forms. And idolatry is most danger- dangerous precisely because it can be very difficult to see. Sure, there are idols many of us have heard of, things like money or drinking or drugs, things that we know take on a life of their own and can become quite out of control. But some idols are even more sneaky than that. As Keller acknowledges, we can make idols out of our work, even work that has noble intentions. We often make idols out of politics or political leaders, forgetting all about the policies they invoke that are meant for the betterment of us all. Some idols seem even less likely to cause harm. Children are a tricky idolatry. Of course, all children should be given the love and attention that they need, but we all know situations in which the devotion goes too far. A parent treats a child like he or she is the center of the universe, and the child, to its detriment, grows up believing just that. This doesn't do the child any good, and it doesn't do the parent much good either, as spouses and friendships and one's own health and well-being are neglected in the process. Just about anything can be an idol. And regardless of what the particular idol is, they all have some common characteristics. As Andy Crouch points out in his book, Playing God, idolatry is seductive because in the first phase, it seems to work. The first sip of that martini tastes great. At first, a new smartphone seems to give you power and control and great convenience. The status you get from a new burst of success is really sensational. But then idols fail. What seemed to offer you more control begins to control you. As Crouch puts it, all idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. And all idols then fail. More and more consistently they fail to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands. And in the end, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable phrase of psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover, idols ask for more and more, while giving less and less, until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. In the Old Testament, there's an important story about idolatry. It has to do with kings. With all the stories we know from the Old Testament about kings, kings like David and Solomon, we sometimes forget that for a long time in the Bible, the Hebrews had no kings. Throughout Genesis and Exodus, the escape from Egypt, delivery of the law at Mount Sinai, wandering in the wilderness in search of the promised land, throughout all of this time, the people have no king. God is their king. It is only when they settle down in one place and they begin to look at the peoples around them, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and they say to one another, everyone else seems to have a king. Why don't we have a king? We should have one too. So they ask their prophet, Samuel, to take this request to God, and the response that comes back to them is a warning. You may think, God warns them, that you want a king to stand up in front of you as a symbol of power and to lead you into battle, but kings do other things than that. A king will put your daughters to work in his palace and in his fields and will send your sons off to war. A king will demand taxes from you to build those palaces and to pay for the wars in which your sons are dying. Be careful what you ask for, says God. But the people keep asking for a king. And God soon lets them have their way, and that is how they get their first king, a man by the name of Saul. Predictably, God's warning turns out to be true. Some of the kings are better than others. Some of them recognize God's authority and live according to God's law, but many others are ruthless and treacherous oppressors of the people. And even the good ones let the people down from time to time because no king can be trusted the way God can be trusted. The lesson is that it's a mistake to put anyone or anything in a place that is best held by God. And that is the definition of idolatry. Anytime we give ultimate authority to something other than God, we are engaging in an act of idolatry. And whether the idol is a king or a job or a drink, it will eventually do what all idols do, ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. There is another way of living, a way of keeping God at the center of things. And it's written about in this morning's scripture lesson from the book of Ephesians. I pray, the author writes, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know God so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know the hope to which God has called you. The beautiful thing about living a life free of idolatry is in the last part of that passage. When our eyes are not darkened by an idol, but are enlightened by the Spirit of God, then it says, you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. Did you hear that? When we are free of idols in our lives, we are finally able to see clearly what God has created us for. And knowing what you are created for, that gives us hope. One of the trickiest things about idolatry is that it often comes from things that appear to be good and in many cases are good. Children and meaningful work are obviously good things. Money can be a blessing when it is used responsibly and generously. Even a good bottle of wine or a nice cigar, these things are products of God's creation. Are they entirely bad? The question, especially when idols can be so tricky, is how do you know when something is a blessing and when it's an idol. Since today is Christ the King Sunday and we're talking about traditional things, I thought I'd point it out to you this way. Back in the days when Presbyterians asked children to memorize catechisms, the most famous one of our catechisms began with this question. What is the chief end of man? the required response was this, to glorify God and enjoy God forever. To glorify God and enjoy God forever. That is what we are created for. It's the sum total of how we are to live our faith. Jesuit priests often refer to something similar. They call it the principle and foundation. It's sort of their statement of purpose when it comes to Christian faith. And it starts by saying that human beings are created to praise God. God creates us and wants us to share life with God forever. And we respond by living lives of prayer and service. That, they say, is the principle and foundation. These statements are about keeping God at the center of life in a way that allows us to clearly see what it is we are created to do and to be in order to give us hope. And the reason I cited the Jesuit version is because it goes on to say something very helpful about idolatry having told us we are created to enjoy and serve God, it then goes on to say this, all of the other things on the face of the earth are created for human beings to help them in the pursuit of that end for which they are created. And from this it follows that we ought to use these things to the extent that they help us toward our end. And we ought to free ourselves from them to the extent that they hinder us from that end. In other words, the things of the world are blessings when they help us to celebrate and serve God. When things separate us from God, they are idols. If you are wondering if something in your life is a blessing or an idol, ask if it is bringing you closer to your praise and service of God. We come to church and we sing songs all the time about the idea that God or Jesus is our king, our ruler, the one who reigns, our ultimate authority. The practical takeaway is this. When you, your child, or your parent, is desperately ill. When you have lost someone you love very, very much. When you have made a terrible mistake and are deeply afraid. When you realize that something about your life is truly beyond your control, who do you trust? To whom do you look for help? God will never forsake us. So we must be very careful not to place our trust in something else.